We know there are times where you're just too busy to sort through the mass of information that comes your way. So to make it easier for you to stay informed, subscribe to The Morning Agenda, WITF's news podcast, where the only agenda is you. Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC. Choose UPMC for your family's health care needs close to home. Visit UPMC.com slash Central PA for a complete list of services and locations. Dr. Hannah Durkin is a historian specializing in transatlantic slavery and African diasporic art and culture. She holds a Ph.D. in American Studies from the University of Nottingham and a postgraduate diploma in journalism from Leeds Trinity University. She also has taught at Nottingham and Newcastle Universities and recently served as a guest researcher at Linnaeus University in Sweden. And I cannot wait uh, to get into to the details about her latest project. So without further ado, folks, I would like to introduce to you Dr. Hannah Durkin to The Spark. Dr. Durkin, welcome to The Spark. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, and it's a pleasure to have you. So um, starting things off, uh, what were the circumstances surrounding the arrival of the Clotilda in Mobile Bay, Alabama? So, um, as I'm sure you know, the transatlantic slave trade or or the United States banned slave trade in 1808 Mm -hmm. and it declared it piracy in 1820, which means it's a capital offence, which means that if you're caught trafficking people, then you should be rightfully be executed. But this doesn't stop an illegal slave trade. Yeah. So and in fact, there's there's this um, huge illegal trade, slave trade that's really centred on Cuba in particular in the 1850s. And um, a lot of the ships that are trafficking trafficking people from uh, Africa to Cuba are, well, these are often U.S.-built ships. So the U.S. is indirectly involved in the slave trade, this illegal slave trade, Mm. in the mid-19th century. But the Clotilda itself, so this is the last last ship to traffic um, people to the United States. And this happens in July 1860. This is when the Clotilda lands in Mobile Bay, Alabama. So this is nine months before the start of the Civil War. And the people involved in it, some of them very closely connected to, to leading figures in the Confederacy. So there's this, this, this wider movement to reopen the transatlantic slave trade, or the, certainly the US slave trade that's happening in the 1850s and start of the 1860s as well. And so um, um, what was the fate of the Clotilda after its arrival in Mobile Bay? So it's scuttled and burned so that the, the people who are kidnapped on board are um, they're scattered and sold throughout Alabama. And the Clotilda itself is, is yeah, burned and partially destroyed. But it's still visible in Mobile Bay at low tide. And it is for decades as well. And archaeologists identified it in the, in the Mobile River about five years ago. And they they found evidence that it possibly been um, dynamited maybe in the early to mid twentieth century, as if there's this further attempt to hide this. Mm. But it's but it's highly visible. And as I came across a newspaper article that shows a photograph 
of an anchor purportedly belonging to the Matilda that's on display at the Alabama State Docks in Mobile in, in 1930. So it's, it's an open secret, basically. Mm. It's an open secret. Oh, man, that just sent a chill down my spine uh, r- r- right there um, um, because um, um, a lot of this and, and, and the thing is, I, I pride myself um, uh, in, in knowing history, um, especially knowing uh, black and African history. Um, and, and, and I found myself like, hmm, oh, wow, sheesh. You know, um, so so how how did the um, survivors of the um, Clotilda contribute to uh, this formation of Africatown? Yes. Yeah, so what happens? The the um, survivors who were enslaved in Mobile, once they achieve their freedom, they um, first of all attempt to save up money to go home. Mm. So they live on subsistence diets. They're forced to forced to labor for their former enslavers in the sawmill. Um, and the women uh, of the community grow, you know, vegetables, fruits and vegetables and take them into town to sell them. So they save up as much money as they can. And they also appeal to their former slavers to, you know, to rightfully take them home. And of course, they don't. Um, so they try and save money, but they have children. Many mm. of them have children by this point. They cannot afford to take them home, can't afford to take their families home. So what they do in 1870 is they begin to buy acres of land north of Mobile. And they, what they do is they, they create this town that they name African Town. It's now known as Africa Town. It still survives today. Descendants still live there. And mm. um, you can go and see the, the areas where they, they lived. And also you can visit the Heritage House, which gives it, you know, a, a history of, of the Clotilda and its survivors. Um, so they build this town and it becomes this really prosperous community. So they they establish their own church and school and eventually a grave when when of course they begin to die and this community is about two to three thousand people by the early 20 early 20th century these are businesses um, black owned businesses this is black owned town just north of mobile these are really successful grocery stores Mm. um um, this really successful school and what's so striking is that um, many of the most successful business people are the Clotilda survivors themselves. So Charlie Lewis, who by the early 20th century is the oldest member of the community, he's also its most successful businessman. He works very long hours, um, you know, planting and, and growing things in the garden, and mm. then he's selling them. He's getting his daughters to sell them in the town. And once he dies, that status really passes to Isaiah Kibi. So he's also a Clotilda survivor. He's also the most successful business person in this community. So these are super talented, hardworking people who are bringing over their knowledge from back home to um, to grow on a, on a soil that's initially unforgiving and, and eventually very you know, fertile, productive soil. Now, um, you you mentioned um, um, a survivor, and I want to um, uh, fo- focus on that now. Uh, what was life like for the survivors of the Clotilda after uh, their arrival in Alabama? So what happens is they're dispersed. So some of them are sent to Mobile, and the, the, the girls and women are forced to labor in the households of their enslavers. The boys and men are sent to work in the sawmills, and also the steamboats. That belongs to their the man who's um, who's engineered this voyage, a man named Tim, Timothy Mayer and his mm. brothers Burns and James. So they're forced to work on the steamboat, work up work up and down the Mobile and Alabama rivers, basically collecting firewood, running up these huge, gigantic, um, you know, bluffs. These these you know these 
actually cliffs of the Alabama River. Dangerous, dangerous work, hard work. And obviously ship cotton down the river as well. And they, at least one of them drowns um, about six months, five or six months after arriving. He drowns in the steamboat mm. or by falling off a steamboat horribly. Um, and the other Clotilda survivors are sent to work in the cotton fields of Alabama. So they're working, working into the night, picking, you know, about 100, um, you know, basically just just so much cotton each day um, you know, and just working long, long hours um, on, again, you know, very basic diets, um, you know, molasses and cornbread and that kind of thing. And, mm. uh, and also um, being forced to partner with other Clotilda survivors and other men. These are very young girls to, to have children to enrich their enslavers. Now, these the, these all sound like um, sound like different sets of uh, challenges here. So uh, what what other challenges did the survivors face in adapting to this new life in America? So they were really hold hold on. To, they were really hard to hold on to their cultural traditions and their you know, religious practices and their mm. cultural practices. And what they find, unfortunately, is there's so, you know, there's, there's so many negative uh, ideas about Africa that they're, you know, they're derided as savages and heathens and mm. and forced to stop openly practicing their religious practices. But they do still hold on to them. Um, and, of course, they're the leaders in establishing churches in their community. So they're very devout people. Mm. And they adapt their own religious practice in a way that these, it sort of functions as a continuum with Christianity. Um, what they also do, so I found strong connections between the Clotilda survivors and the community of Gee's Bend, the quilting community of Gee's Bend, Alabama, which is famous for its unusual quilting traditions of bright colours and abstract shapes. And, you know, really, they've been likened to West African strip mm. weaving, where, you, you know, you have strips of cloth that weave, woven together into a single fabric. And in fact, the Clotilda survivors came from a community that was well known for its traditions of strip weaving. And a lot of the Clotilda survivors, certainly a large proportion, ended up in Gee's Bend and the neighbouring community of Rehoboth, which is also regarded as part of Gee's, as part of Gee's Bend. Mm. And uh, and areas just very close to that, that part of Wilcox County. Yeah, like on um, like like I like to tell people uh, when we have conversations uh, about um, uh, slavery and and the in, enslaved, you know, uh, what is forgotten is that these these weren't just you know uh, um, unknown people uh, being being taken from their land. You know, these these were politicians, these were iron workers, steel workers, these were farmers. You know, the, these were um, uh, fishers and and, and farmers. And, and everything. These weren't just some anonymous folks uh, that were taken for, from their land. Why did you? Th- it, it, this is going to sound like a, a simple question here, but it's definitely an important one. Why did you write this book? Yeah, so I, I didn't really realize until, well, until after I started writing that I was writing a full book as opposed to an article. So I was working on a project on the writer Zora Neale Hurston. So I was working on her film work because she was quite possibly the first African-American professional woman filmmaker. Mm. And she travelled to the South in the late 1920s, documenting the stories and also filming uh, people living in the South at that time, people working on things like sawmills and, and you know, the train, working on the train lines. And So I thought maybe I can identify some of the people in her films and tell, her sto- tell their stories. 
So one of them was Kazula, who for a long time was believed to be the last Clotilda survivor mm. and the last known middle passage survivor. But Hurston wrote in a letter to Langston Hughes about another Clotilda survivor that she didn't name. And when I was trying to identify the names of the people in the films, I turned to this posthumously published book of hers. Mm-hmm. And in the, one of the appendices to that book, it listed the names of the people she interviewed. And somewhere in that list, there was a name, it said... Um, the name of a woman, Sally Smith, born Tarqua Gold Coast, which is present-day Ghana, um, Africa. So I realised I had her name. And I thought, maybe, maybe, I, you know, this woman could have been identified before. Maybe I can tell her story. So I went digging for information about her and eventually mm. scraped together enough material to tell her story for an article. And then realised when I'd told her story that I'd missed another Clotilda survivor. So I wrote an article telling her story. And then... I kept looking because I felt that I kind of, you know, had the research power to tell people's stories. And this is the story of people whose lives and stories have been hidden from mm. history, deliberately hidden from history. And I didn't want to be complicit in that elision, that, you know, silencing and hiding of them. Their story is so important and they wanted their stories to be told. So I tried to tell it and I found, you know, that I could uncover lots of material when I looked so what what does it uh, 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 take on on the research and the preparation side uh, to to put to put something like this together? Uh, be, because you you really have to uh, piece it together. Like okay, I research this over here. Let me put this aside, and I'm gonna research this next week, and and then you gotta put it all together. You know, can you uh, um, give us a little insight in, in into the process and what it takes to to, to put uh, this piece together? Absolutely. So it's almost eight years since I found the name Sally Smith, Gold oh, wow. Coast Tarqua. So this is eight years of work, really. It's not other things have happened in my life, but you know, this has been what I've done more than, far more than anything else. Mm. And so what I was doing was really, um, some of it was just, I mean, maybe there was a faster, less labor intensive process, but some of it was just looking on the census for the names of people who were born in Africa. Mm. who were still alive in the 1870s, 1880s, you know, 1920s, and asking that question, are they a Clotilda survivor? And then looking at other genealogical information, so looking for children whose parents were listed as African-born on the census, looking at new, looking through newspaper articles. I really benefited because a lot of newspaper articles have only recently been digitised. Mm. So they're only recently easily searchable. Before, you'd have to go through some kind of microfilm or something to read them all. Now you can just do kind of a Google search. But most of the Clotilda survivors weren't identified as Clotilda survivors. They mm. might be identified as an old African or a yeah. wanderer survivor. It missed deliberately sometimes misidentified as a wanderer survivor. Now the wanderer was the penultimate US spaceship and that docked off Jekyll Island, Georgia, about 19 months before the Clotilda landed. And there were wanderer survivors who were sent to Alabama. So it was, they were mostly boys and young men, though. So when it was a woman, it became much more likely that that person would be a Clotilda survivor. But you just look at them in relation to one another, because if you know there were Clotilda survivors living somewhere, well, were there other people living with them? Mm. And often, quite often there were. They, these were people who weren't living on their own. They were living in, in these small communities. Now, these these um, Clotilda survivors, um, when when we're talking about uh, uh, maintaining their their cultural identity after being removed from their homeland, um, how did they maintain 
this this identity in this new land? So, I mean, one thing that was striking, and this is just a small example, I guess, I was talking to a great-great-granddaughter of Radoshi or Sally Smith, and she was saying that she kept alive her food traditions. So mm. the great-great-granddaughter, obviously, is part of you to remember Radoshi, but her father, Radoshi's great-grandson, grew up alongside her in rural Dallas County. And he used to just tell her, tell his daughter about his great-grandmother. Mm. And he, she had these unusual food traditions. And also she apparently, this, this, the woman I spoke to didn't remember the details, but apparently she, had, she knew to do, how to do something with the land to make it more productive. So there's some kind of farming traditions that are surviving. Um, there's evidence, or at least it's, I mean, it's, I guess it's a bit, uh, you know, a bit hard to be sure, but um, Matilda McCreer, who died in January 1940, she was two years old when she was kidnapped. Mm. Um, and she was kidnapped with her mother, who lived on until the 1870, yeah, about 1870 or 1880. Anyway, um, the, 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 the suggestion, there's a possibility that she kept the same hair traditions that her mother taught her. Mm. Um, up until the end of her life. It's all kinds of little things and big things that suggest that they are holding on to their cultural and religious practices. When um, Gumper or Peter Lee, who was um, who was the only fawn, or the only member of the group who was from the Dahomey Empire, the empire that actually kidnapped and sold the Clotilda survivors, when that child was born on a, I think it was a full moon, the, the, um, he has a the father Gumper has a tattoo, has a mark, a tattoo of an Ouroboros placed on this child's chest, which is a symbol from back home. He's so thrilled. He sees this birth, you know, this timing of the child's birth as evidence that, that you know, these, these, his identity, this child's identity, has survived the Middle Passage and is continuing. Mm. So all these kinds of amazing little things that tell us so much about their heritage and how they held on to it. And, and and uh one one place that that also is in in Alabama as we all know um is is Selma. Um uh so uh what role did uh the Clotilda survivors play in the civil rights movement in Selma? So um Matilda McCreer who was the last survivor the 2-year-old I mentioned um, with a hairstyle in December 1931 she marches from her home in rural Dallas County. She marches 15 miles to Dallas County Courthouse in Selma to demand reparations. Mm. And of course, the white judge sends her away. She has no success with that um, struggle for reparations. But this is the same courthouse where um, Selma voting rights campaigners gather to demand their voting rights, mm. which of course leads to the Selma to Montgomery marches and leads to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Also, Radoshi, Sally Smith, the, the woman that um, Zora Neale Hurston didn't, named but didn't name, um, she befriended uh, Amelia Boynton Robinson, who was a leader in this voting rights campaign for decades. Mm. And uh, Amelia Boynton Robinson, in her memoir, talks about her memories of Bogachissa, which is where Radoshi lived. And she talks about how this, this was such an inspiring community. But she also says, in particular... Among my uh, among my richest experiences of the 1930s, you know, in Bogota, were my encounters with this African woman. So she's really inspired by Radoshi. Um, 
So, yeah. So there's lots of civil rights connections. And uh, and when somebody uh, picks up this book and, and begins reading it, uh, what what can they expect or what should they expect? So obviously it's a difficult read. This is a mm. horrible, you know, horrible, the most unimaginably hor- horrible experience. But also one thing I've been hearing from people is just how inspired they are mm. by the Catilda survivors. You know, this is in some ways... Um, you know, an enriching experience for people that they are learning about this incredible group of people who endure and survive and hold on to their cultural practices. And they're just incredible, you know, incredible upstanding citizens and, and leaders of their communities. And yeah, they tell us about the worst of humanity, but they also tell us about its very best as mm. well. And uh, and final question here, um, Dr. Durkin, how, how did the survivors um, experiences contribute to the broader history of slavery in America? So I think one thing that's really significant about this story and I guess um, so in America and more broadly is that we have so few first hand accounts of the middle passage. Mm-hmm. We have so few first hand accounts of, of what it was like to be kidnapped and enslaved. Um, and also, in, in their case, to, to survive in some cases for decades beyond. And there are almost no voices of women that are present survivors. So the right. accounts in this book are more comprehensive than, than we can find anywhere. I will say this. Uh, what I was uh, thinking about while reading it, I, I was like, man, you know, it's 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 stuff like this, you, you know, that that fall in between the cracks of of your, you know, uh, black history museums uh, like in Baltimore and, and in D.C. And, and it's, it's very much appreciative uh, that um, that artists like you, that authors like you, you know, capture these these stories, you know, so so that. They A, can be told, and B, we see how, you know, um, the, the survivors of, of slavery contribute to the overall fabric of, of America. <laughs> 